the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. For sports fans, there's no better place to get breaking news, real time commentary, powerful stories than The Athletic. Download that app, personalize it with your favorite teams and leagues, and get real time, exclusive, ad free content at your fingertips. For all of this and plenty, plenty more, visit theathletic.com slash SpotTrack, S-P-O-T-R-A-C, for 40% off your first year. My name is Mike Gennetti. Here's the gamut for today. A quick three-spot, a little bit of baseball, a little bit of hockey, a little bit of NFL draft, and then more NFL draft on the back end of the show with Chris DePasso from CBS Sports, who gives us a precursor to the draft class, some of the positional breakdowns, some fits, some needs, obviously the quarterback talk and plenty, plenty more at the back end of this show. One. Juan Soto reportedly turned down a 13-year, $350 million extension from the Washington Nationals prior to the lockout, so probably late November. This would have been the third highest total contract in Major League Baseball history at 350, but on that annual average, $26.9 million, that's the 21st highest contract, which is uh, probably not what he's thinking right now. It's basically an adjusted version of Bryce Harper's deal in Philly, his former teammate, who got 13 years, $330 million. So if we're talking $20 million more on the same amount of term, you can understand why the offer was put into place. But when you kind of wrap it in a bow and understand the innards of it, it's just not going to get there. Here's why. It sounds big. It sounds huge. It sounds like something everybody should take. It's $350 million fully guaranteed. But Juan Soto and super agent Scott Boris have much, much bigger numbers in mind for this guy. And while they did with Harper, there just wasn't the, the backing to get there. You, you could never find the consistency, the production, the wow factor. And, and, you know, part of that was the hype that came with Harper coming out of the gate. You know, Sports Illustrated at age 17 or 16, whatever it was. And uh, he just never kind of lived up to that immediate, that immediate punch in our face that we expected, sort of like LeBron did. Um, Soto has, and quietly, he's going to become more and more a national focal point because of what he can do, because of how easy it is for him, and because he's 23, 24 years old, and there's still a ceiling to be raised here. There's more potential to get out of this guy. So to take 350, to take the third highest contract ever for this guy right now is underselling what this guy probably will be in five years. Mathematically speaking, you know how we do our valuations at this point. You know, I don't, I don't put any eye test stuff into this. I simply let the math do the talking and then we evaluate the, what the math tells us after the fact. Just mathematically speaking, with three years under, under his belt, this guy projects to a 15-year, $503 million contract in our system. That's the first time we've ever seen anybody go over $500 million with just math. He's already there at age 23. So if you take that 13-year offer, make it a 15-year offer, it's exactly $100 million shy of our valuation. It'd be 15 years, 403, which was offered. And we're telling you he's worth 15 years, 503 on paper using just numbers. So $500 million is legitimate for this guy. Depends on what kind of term he's looking for. But Scott Boris has a real gripe with this one. He can really push back and say, thanks, but no thanks. You got to come way bigger over the next three seasons before this guy gets to free agency if you want to even be considered for a long-term extension. So hell of an offer, but in my opinion, at least $100 million under where they have to be if they're thinking about keeping this guy. Two. 
All right, the past few NHL seasons, NHL that is, there's been a bit of a loophole brought to the forefront, which is the long-term injured reserve salary cap. Here's how this works, and it's way more complicated and convoluted than I want to get into here, but for the most part, a player that is sent to the LTIR, if there's not enough cap space to take him on, you basically get to forgive that cap space for the, for the period of time that the player is on LTIR. There's a bunch of conditions that, that don't allow that, but not enough. And that's part of why this loophole exists. So what the really good teams who are really trying to push and build and add players and add the best team possible have been doing, and you know, there's a bit of luck involved in this. Unfortunately, you know, a player has to be injured. And if that player has a high enough cap number when he's injured, you can put that guy to the LTIR list, the reserve list, take his nine million plus cap hit off your books, and backfill that with players that can that, that can essentially absorb that lost salary cap. And we've seen that over the past couple of seasons with Chicago, with Tampa Bay last year, Tampa Bay the past couple of seasons, and now the latest to the forefront is the Vegas Golden Knights, who did this yesterday. Jack Eichel's been on the shelf, recovering from a neck and back injury for a long time since his trade from Buffalo was about to make his debut last night. Vegas didn't have the space to take him onto the active roster. Mark Stone was injured. He's going to be injured for a while here. He's their captain defenseman. Carried a $9.5 million cap hit. He gets sent to LTIR. There's plenty of room for Eichel and plenty of room to get everybody else in the door here. The, the problem with it isn't that that mechanism exists. The problem is, come playoff time, they can activate Mark Stone and once you're inside the playoffs and outside of the regular season, the salary cap, the hard salary cap stuff no longer matters. It's your roster is your roster. So, you know, by the end of last year, for instance, almost all the playoff teams were over the cap threshold in the NHL because these kind of things have added up and you simply just have to take adjustments for it down the road. In other words, you can game the system throughout the 82-game regular season with up and downs and reserve lists and activations, there's not, not really a rule or rhyme to say at some point in time, that player's just done for the year. Nikita Kucherov last year was put in this exact situation, sent to the reserve list, brought back for the playoffs, was a major impact and reason why the Lightning won their second straight Stanley Cup. So this isn't new. It's becoming more and more prevalent. And that's going to bode the question, what's going to have to change here, if anything at all? Maybe the NHL just doesn't care. But in my opinion, there's two ways to look at this. One, this could be a simple, quick fix. Nothing's quick with CBAs and lawyers, but do you just go the NFL route and say there are two options for putting a, putting a player on injured reserve? You can either designate that player for return, and there's going to be a certain amount of, of cases that you're allowed to do that. Maybe it's two players. Maybe it's a certain amount of cap that you can designate for a reserve. Maybe there's a pool right? Maybe it's 10, 12, maybe it's 10% of the salary cap that you're allowed to designate for return in a given year, or it's season ending injury reserve. If the player is injured and you've deemed him injured enough to be LTIR, he's done for the year. You, you, you can take some, some discounts on his salary cap figure. You know, that can still be baked into the cake so that you can to continue to build your roster. But it's not going to be a situation where you can, you can shelve him for two months, bring him back in June, and he can be the most important player on your Stanley Cup team. So that's a quick fix look at this, something the NFL has had to do because of this very situation, by the way. Um, to me, though, this is screaming a different conversation. This is screaming a more, a, a more financial approach, which is Chicago, 
Tampa Bay, Toronto, Vegas now, you know, some of these bigger teams, these bigger organizations, and not necessarily the biggest markets in the league, they're dying to spend money. They're dying to build super teams. You know, this is kind of the Dodgers conversation in Major League Baseball. And by the way, this is one of the reasons baseball is locked out right now, because you do have a handful of teams that are trying to push $250 million worth of cap and cash. And, you know, half the league that's not doing that. So there's a parity discussion, there's a super team discussion, there's a major market versus small market discussion, you know, revenue sharing, all that stuff. Very similar to what the NHL is dealing with. But does the league want to sit down and have a real conversation about does parity matter enough to stop our big markets or our, 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 our spending teams from going out and spending? Because look, the Lightning spending as much as possible, 92 million cash on an $81 million cap that's good for the league. That's revenue for the league. That's attraction for the league. It's marketability for the league. They're a, they're a mini dynasty right now in Tampa Bay. If they win again this year, they're going to be up there with some of the great NHL franchises and, and sports franchises because we're not seeing, you know, three out of four, four years won by any market. You know, the Warriors did that 10 years ago or so now, and we're just not seeing that happen anymore. So we, the NHL really has to start to hang their hat on what the Lightning are trying to do. And in my opinion, the hard cap is stopping them from doing it. And that shouldn't be the case. To me, this conversation is trending toward, does the league need to go to a soft cap with a luxury tax system? Now, I know that's going to make a lot of you diehard NHL people just, just vomit in your mouth. But I think it's a real consideration. Now, you can bring your parity conversation as much as you want to me. And I'm here for it. I love, I love what the baseball does when it's right. I love seeing the Cincinnati Bengals do what they just did in football because they were able to flip the switch quickly. I don't think that we're going to get into a situation where it's Lakers, Warriors, you know, major markets only, only winning in the NBA, in the NHL. In fact, we're already seeing it. We're already seeing the same suspects get to the postseason, get late into the postseason in the NHL every two to three years. So the parity conversation is kind of gone. Yes, the Blues just went worse the first a couple of years back. But teams that want to spend should be able to spend. It's better for the sport. It's better for everything in the sport if, you're, you're max, if, you, if some of your teams are trying to max out. I think there should be a real discussion about softening the, the salary cap, which isn't rising fast enough anyway to keep up with this stuff and letting teams that want to spend, spend and, and face a luxury tax bill. I think it's a real conversation in this league, and this isn't something I would have thought three years ago. But the, the prevalence of this loophole, the, the, the want and desire of teams to add players, to, to add cap late in the season, to make a run and try to become a super team for that season specifically, to be all in for one year, that shouldn't be something the league is, is holding back right now. And I think this is a, this is a real conversation to be having right now. Three. All right, finally, a little NFL talk, but a little off the board for us here. We're going to have some draft conversation today as well um, in terms of players and team needs and all that good stuff. But before we get there, I want to proceed that conversation with kind of a transactional look at what the draft could be. Because, you know, draft pick trading is at the top of the NFL conversation right now because of what the Rams just did. You know, teams are looking at themselves saying, can we be a version of that? Is there a is there a high draft pick that we can move for a, a specific player that could take us from, you know, C to B or B to A in terms of our, our chances of contention in 2022 and 2023? Because it is a win now league. I've been saying this for five years. 
that the, you know, if you're building for the future, if we're even building for three years, you're probably doing it wrong right now in a lot of these sports. And the NFL is certainly that sport now. Some teams just have to do it. You know, Jacksonville's going to have to be methodical in getting themselves back. But for, for the most part, there's 15 to 16 teams that if they play their cards right, can use trades, whether it's player for player, player for pick, to immediately make themselves markedly better tomorrow. And I think we're going to see that. That's why the quarterback carousel conversations and the, the trade candidacy conversations are at all-time highs. I think there's a chance we see double the amount of trades in the NFL over the next month and a half that we've ever seen in an NFL offseason because it's a safer way, financially speaking, to move a player. And because, and I'm not saying the draft has been devalued, I'm saying using the value of the draft to build immediately has now shown that it can work. And it's not just the Rams. We've seen other teams do this, certainly with you know, Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay didn't just sign Tom Brady in free agency. They acquired players via trade to supplement Tom Brady. So there's a, there's a real trend here in terms of how valuable are those draft picks. And by the way, is selecting a player right now in the first round the best way for us to win right now? Because it's not, it's not, you know, there aren't many positions out there where you can draft a player in the top 20 in any given draft year, and those players have an immediate impact on a Super Bowl roster. It's just rare. So if you're thinking that that's the best approach for you, just know that you're probably not doing the most you can to win at that point. You are building for the future. You are looking for financial value in doing that, but that doesn't necessarily translate to immediate Super Bowl rosters. So let's put this in perspective. And, and the conversation I'm, I'm having here is not about should you, your team trade your first round pick. What I want to do is I want to go a little deeper and say, if, if this conversation is going to happen and if these trades are going to be more prevalent in the NFL, then we have to start thinking about even more creative uses of this kind of moniker. And it's an NBA thing. S to some degree, it's an MLB thing, but it's very rare there. But I think this could be a real conversation in the NFL. And what it is, is the three-team trade. All right? We have four teams right now that have more than one first-round pick in the upcoming draft. The Eagles, the Giants, the Jets, and the Lions. Now, the Lions' second pick is 32nd overall to the Rams. Okay, That's part of the Stafford trade. So not exactly the most attractive pick, but still tradable. Still very tradable. I'm going to use the Jets here as an example, and I'm going to use the Aaron Rodgers situation as kind of an example of what I'm talking about here. It's not so much that I'm saying... You know, the Jets should trade their second first round pick for a player and get better immediately. What I'm saying is they can get their player, but be a part of a three team deal that actually gets them a player, two players, a player and a pick just because they have an extra first round pick. Here's the example I'm going to lay out for you. I'm going to assume that Denver trades both Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams excuse me, Green Bay trades those two players to the Denver Broncos. It's an, it's an unrealistic situation. Let's just say it happens. And in doing so, Denver's going to have to give up four top 100 draft picks, but they also want to give up two players because they're bringing in a ton of cap. They want to shed two players that they either have to re-sign or already have a decent amount of cap and cash under their current contracts. So for intense, all intents, let's just say it's Bradley Chubb and Cortland Sutton that they want to send back to Green Bay. But Green Bay's saying, wait, no. You know, in, in losing these two guys, we are now softly rebuilding around Jordan Love. We're looking for value here. We're looking for less cap, less cash on our payroll right now. 
we don't want to take back two of those guys. We don't, we don't want that on our roster right now. We want to deal with our own financial situation. Now the Jets come in because the Jets are looking at Cortland Sutton and saying, hell yes, okay? And maybe even Bradley Chubb for a year, even though he has to get paid. So let's say the Jets want both of those players and, and they get involved in this conversation and say, look, Denver, you send us one of those picks, okay? We'll send Green Bay our first round pick now you only have to send them three of your three other top 100 picks. We'll take your two players. We'll take an extra second round pick from you. You send a first and two seconds, and we'll send one of our firsts to Green Bay who just want picks. They want to be able to re- rebuild through the draft over the next two, three years. And everybody's happy now. The Jets get two impact players to immediately make themselves better. Denver gets two huge impact players to immediately push for the Super Bowl. And Green Bay gets cash and cap off their books and major draft picks coming back. That's the kind of creativity I'm looking for in the NFL. Now that we have three, four teams with multiple firsts, plenty of teams with plenty of top 100 picks, this is what I want to see the Jets do. This is what I want to see maybe the Lions do. Not so much, I got to trade a first to get back and get extra second round picks. Yes, we've seen that happen quite a bit. It's going to happen more this year. I'm not saying that's a bad approach. But for a team that's really trying to push forward, let's say the Eagles, by the way, with three firsts, they're a perfect candidate for this, especially if they, they want to keep their current quarterback and they're not looking to make a huge impact quarterback trade this offseason. What if they're looking to get an edge rusher? What if they're looking to get a tight end or a, or a wide receiver to really make Jalen Hurts' life a little bit better this offseason? This is the conversation to be having. That same scenario with the Jets could be with Denver and Green Bay, right? Bringing Cortland Sutton, bringing Jerry Judy, bringing Bradley Chubb, and send one of these first-round picks to Green Bay to complete the three-team trade. It's not likely, <laughs> but I really think that conversation needs to start happening in terms of more creative trades, because I do think trades are going to be ramped up in 2022 in the NFL. All right, thrilled to have this guy on the show to break down some NFL drafts talk for us. Chris DePasso from CBS Sports. He is the founder of the Scouting Gradebook there and the NFL Player Analyst in terms of the NFL draft. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks for having me on this. Uh, like you mentioned right before we started, we're kind of in a transition period that we're still talking about the Super Bowl, free agencies right around the corner, but we're right in the thick of the NFL draft season. For me and for a lot of people, it's like the introduction to this next draft class. Yeah, that's why you're here. And it is early, right? The combine's still a couple of weeks away and things like that. So a lot can change. But in terms of team needs, that's kind of why I, I like to start this conversation early February because it precedes free agency. We kind of have to figure out if teams are going to go draft or free agency or trades with a lot of their, their, their positional holes. So I'm going to start with you here. I'm going to defer to you here. What kind of draft are we looking at here in terms of positional strength, maybe weaknesses? Uh, just what kind of a, a set of players are we dealing with here over the next couple of months? Okay, I can run through this pretty quickly, but this will be able to give uh, fans of every team just a quick rundown of where the strengths and weaknesses lie in the 2022 draft class. Probably even if you're not super in tune with the draft class just yet you've probably seen it's not the greatest quarterback class i think there are some interesting talents that in the right scenario could become franchise quarterbacks um the receiver class which has really been the case the last like five years is very strong not jamar chase and jalen waddle or cd lamb and jerry judy like the elite talents at the top but there'll be probably four or five receivers that will go within the first 40-ish picks 
the best tight end class that we've had in a long time. There's not a Kyle Pitts. There's not a TJ Hawkinson, but I feel like the first three or four rounds, we'll look back in a couple of years and say, hey, this was a deep tight end class. Uh, running back is good. Um, not probably a first rounder, um, but there are a lot of second and third round talents that I think um, will be feature backs early in their careers and be quality players. The interior offensive line and the interior defensive line, not very strong. They'll certainly, just because of positional value or, or if teams want that interior pass rusher, we might see a few in the first round, but don't be surprised if that's not um, a position that we hear their names being called in, in, in the first 50 or so picks. Same is true with guard. Um, center is Tyler Linderbaum from Iowa, that he's probably going to be the highest center ever drafted or within the last 20 or 30 years, but the interior class as a whole, not great. Good cornerback class, decent linebacker class, pretty good safety class as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, And one last position, the edge defenders are also very good. It's not just Aiden Hutchinson and Kayvon Thibodeau from Oregon. There'll be a bunch of those in the first round just because of positional value. And I really think it aligns with the talent. So the edge rusher group, um, wide receiver, tight end, uh, offensive tackle, all very good. Interior of the offensive and defensive line, not so strong in the 2022 draft. You know, it's funny because I've been doing a little bit of offseason work, actually, more than I like to talk about out loud. But it, it seems like, for the most part, many teams are happy with their offensive tackles. I mean, that's mm -hmm. been Good such point. a point of emphasis over the past five years. It seems like even the young guys have been locked up. They're just kind of set in stone. So to hear that it's a bad interior class, which is really where a lot of these NFL offenses are going now up the middle in terms of protecting the quarterback, that's bad news for a lot of bad teams right now because I think that that was going to be a point of emphasis. That to me screams that there could be major free agent overpays or even trade acquisitions from some of these bad teams that get better interior. The edge rushers are, are, are probably the best position here, right, in terms of overall first-round prowess? Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's the best combination, probably along with receiver, of having, like, the marquee franchise-altering talents at the top with Kayvon Thibodeau um, and Aiden Hutchinson, and then also, like, deep in that middle first round, late first, well into the second, maybe even into the third round, players that are going to be very good edge rushers um, at the next level. David Ajabo from Michigan, George Karloftis from Purdue, Arnold Evacati from Penn State, um, Jermaine Johnson from Florida State, uh, Trevon Walker from Georgia, Maje Sanders from Cincinnati. Those are all players right there. Boye Mafe from uh, Minnesota. Names that you will start to hear over the next couple months that are, are not just you know, pass rushing specialists that will be in a role player type of position, they can be like number one rushers on their team. So it, it is a, a class that if you need an edge rusher, you want to pick them early because a lot are going to go off the board and there's just a nice collection of them. That's bad news for us. Frank Clark and Chandler Jones and these guys looking yes. for 15 million a year right now, in my opinion. Is there yep. a Micah Parsons out there, Chris? Is there a guy that can really impact like a contending team right now, maybe in the middle of this first round? talking about edge rusher or kind of being that hybrid that can also be a yeah, linebacker? Yeah, I'm looking for that hybrid. To me, that's the most fascinating player. in the. I've done a lot of work on like a Tyron Matthew over the past couple of years, and he's up for a contract now again. 
you know, those kind of guys to me, it seemed like diamonds in the, in the rough out there. And there's, it seems like it's really hard to identify them from a draft perspective and they kind of show up and you, you realize how much versatility they have once you get them to camp. Is there a guy like that you think could push forward? Um, well, yeah, that's a great point on Micah Parsons in that he is kind of a unicorn and that I, I remember scouting him obviously and writing that he, you know, had sideline to sideline range as an off ball linebacker wasn't great in coverage, but then like on third downs, I remember writing like he has legitimate edge rusher abilities. And then Demarcus Lawrence gets hurt early in the season and he comes in and, and is a tremendous top five pass rusher, top 10 pass rusher right away. I don't think there's that type. If there is someone at, at that linebacker edge rusher hybrid type of position, it's probably Devin Lloyd from Utah. He's not quite as strong and physically imposing as Micah Parsons, but Utah did use him as an outside rusher relatively often this past season. Super long, has tons of range. Um, I don't think he could step down into an edge rusher role as a rookie and have 15 sacks, um, but he probably has the most athleticism and just experience doing that. At the safety position, if you're looking at, at, at kind of someone that's that hybrid that can be a slot defender, uh, outside corner, safety. Kyle Hamilton from Notre Dame is the headliner. He, to me, is the closest thing, even more so than Isaiah Simmons, that we have seen to Derwin James since he entered the NFL. Uh, Kyle Hamilton is big. He's 6'4", 220, uh, has serious range, great tackler, can cover because he has great change of direction ability. And two other names that are more in that Tyron Matthew role, Daxton Hill from Michigan, and Jalen Petrie from Baylor. If your team is looking for that truly do-everything type of safety, that's also that slot defender that can really lock down in the slot, Daxton Hill and Jalen Petrie are the two defensive backs that you want to keep a close eye on, where maybe if the Chiefs don't want to pay Tyron Matthew, or if a team wants Tyron Matthew but loses out on him in free agency, you can get I don't want to say 90% of Tyron Matthew, but you can get a, a good chunk of what he provides in terms of legitimate playmaking versatility at a much cheaper cost in the draft. I, I geek out for those kind of players. So I love that there's three or four of those guys in this first round. All right, here's a difficult question, but I want to kind of bring it back to what I do a little bit. Let's say I'm a team with the top 10 pick in this draft. And is there a, a wide receiver available in the draft that would make me want to take him versus paying Chris Godwin or Mike Williams? Oh, that is a fantastic question. And that's probably a conversation that's going on in a lot of front offices around the NFL, probably like today, as they're trying to formulate um, free agency plans, draft plans. <sighs> that's tough. Um, I, I always, being a draft guy, I'll admit the bias that I have that I, I, I would normally like lean toward go toward the draft, but now we're just having watched the Super Bowl where the Rams kind of said, hey, forget about the first rounders, trade for Odell Beckham Jr., trade for Von Miller, Matthew Stafford. To answer your question, I, I, I think so. I think Drake London from USC, who does not have a lot of hype right now, I think once we get past the combine, that will ultimately happen. Uh, he can be that do-everything wide receiver and that he's six foot five like 210 pounds and he's not stiff. He's not JJ Arcega Whiteside that can only make contested catches down the field. Enough ability to create separation um, where he's not going to be glued to cornerbacks once he gets to the NFL. 
fantastic after the catch. He's really surprising in that he's kind of lanky and scrawny, but he runs over cornerbacks. He's got great contact balance, and he does play above the rim like a six foot five receiver normally does. So right now, Drake London seems like that guy that I think will be a big riser, and maybe he won't ultimately be the first receiver off the board. But if you're looking at a gigantic deal for Chris Godwin, I think a lot of what Chris Godwin brings to the field, that he's that well-rounded wide receiver, not Devontae Adams or Stephon Diggs in terms of creating separation, but good enough in that area, very successful after the catch, will make those difficult grabs. Drake London from USC, and maybe to a lesser extent, Garrett Wilson from Ohio State, can give you a lot of what Chris Godwin does, the body type, the yak ability, and the contested catch skill. And again, a much cheaper price than paying Chris Godwin, you know, a, a huge three or four year deal. You mentioned the running backs and they always fascinate me this time of year because I, I never know kind of how teams are going to operate with this, this position anymore, especially mm-hmm. in the draft. But, you know, there's, there's a really good logical sense to sneak in a running back into the end of that first round. There just always is with me, especially if you don't plan to pay. If your plan is five to six years, you know, a fifth year option and a six year franchise tag. And you think you can get a guy that can, that can, you know, change your offense for those five, six years, taking him 32nd versus taking him 33rd makes a hell of a lot of difference. So yeah. is there a guy that you think could at least, you know, logically fit into a, a 30, the 32nd round pick here? To me, that player would be Isaiah Spiller from Texas a and I'm not the biggest proponent really at all of picking a running back in the first round, but financially what you just pointed out, if you're going to do it, like you said, picking him 32 instead of 33 or hoping he lasts in the second round, it makes a lot more team building sense um, just by the finances. Isaiah Spiller is young. He was very productive for multiple seasons in the SEC. And to get more value out of the running back spot, we've seen it over the last couple of years. And I think we're just at the outset of this, uh, you have to be a good receiver. I mean, what Debo Samuel did, Corderell Patterson, um, this past season being that quote-unquote wide back position where you can literally line up in the slot, run routes, take jet sweeps, um, and then be a running back as well. I think that's how you maximize the value if you're going to pick a running back in the first round. Spiller made a lot of difficult catches on wheel routes, running from the slot. I think he's got a big body where he's not going to break down Uh, very early in his NFL career. He reminds me a lot of Melvin Gordon, and I think he's a little bit more elusive than Melvin Gordon. And, you know, he certainly had his trials and tribulations with with holding out and with finances, but when he's been behind at least even an adequate offensive line, he's been a very productive running back for the Chargers and the Broncos. Um, So that would be the guy for me. I know a lot of people like Kenneth Walker from uh, Michigan State. Brees Hall from Iowa State, but Isaiah Spiller, I think, is the most complete back in this class and adding that receiving ability, truly being able to make difficult catches, running routes out of the slot, um, and and just to have that physical skill set where he's not going to break down. I think he would be the guy, if there is one, it would be him to go in the first round. Okay, so so the Kenneth Walker stuff is less pass catch then, huh? He's more of a Henry yeah. Joe Mixon type model? Yeah, where he's not, I mean, maybe he can be a good receiver, but me watching his film, I can't say that he has tremendous hands because they didn't really utilize him hmm. in that way. So if a team picks him, um, they'll have to kind of be banking on or hoping 
that Kenneth Walker, you know, can be that added element of being able to be a quality receiver just once he gets to the NFL because he didn't show that a lot in this breakout season for the Spartans. All right. Obligatory quarterback talk, even though it's a terrible year to talk about the quarterback in the draft. <laughs> um, this feels a little bit like the EJ Manuel draft where yeah. we don't even know who the number one quarterback is at this point. I'm not sure we'll know after the combine because it sounds like that could be, you know, something that's not desirable either. But uh, I guess it's, is it Kenny Pickett? Is it, well, I mean, where are we with these quarterbacks? How many sneak into the middle or late of the first round? Which teams, if, if you know, which team do you think will be eyeing these kind of guys? Because obviously there's going to be a lot of options from a veteran standpoint at the quarterback position this offseason as well. So to me, the, everything's behind the eight ball with these guys in terms of their current draft position. Yeah, that's a great question. And really, even though the consensus is that this quarterback class is a little bit uh, not as appealing as the last four or five of them, I think it's still fascinating to talk about because of the point that you mentioned that we don't really know who that number one quarterback is. Like last year, talking about Trevor Lawrence in the past with Kyler Murray ascending and Joe Burrow ascending, there was really not a lot to talk about. We knew those guys were going to be picked really early. And like that 2013 draft class, I think we will get to draft night and have no clue, unless there's some leaks, who's going to be the first quarterback off the board. No one was sure if it was going to be EJ Manuel or Geno Smith or even Ryan Nassib in that draft class. Um, to me, it's Malik Willis and being based in Western New York and watching the maturation of Josh Allen that I totally do get is a little bit of an outlier. Um, I would lean toward Malik Willis because he gives you the most potential of being that all pro MVP candidate that can really move the needle for you offensively. There will probably be other teams, other GMs, head coaches that don't like all that risk and will kind of go the Jimmy Garoppolo, Baker Mayfield, uh, Jalen Hurts route and say, let's go with Kenny Pickett. He has a higher floor. He played more games. Um, he's not going to make as many bad decisions. He's more ready to start from year one. I just don't know how crazy his upside is. And it will really just depend on the organizational philosophy of, do we want to you know, have someone that might take some time to develop, but then can be that franchise guy? that can be an MVP candidate um, or are we going to go the safer route, Kenny Pickett, Matt Corral, and then even to a lesser extent, Desmond Ritter and Sam Howell. So there's like, this will be a draft class that over the next couple months, when the uh, infamous anonymous source reports comes out um, that we'll hear uh, around the internet on Twitter, some teams will have like third round grades on Malik Willis and other teams will like him as a top 10 pick. I think the Panthers, the Washington or the, I almost said Washington football team, Washington commanders. Uh, those teams seem to be really much in the quarterback market. They need to get those positions right. They're probably a quality quarterback away from being playoff contenders again. Um, I wouldn't hate the Atlanta Falcons um, drafting someone like Malik Willis to sit behind Matt Ryan for a season as that, contra as that contract um, reaches its end where it's really Chris, expensive. Is that number nine? Or are, you, are you looking for them to trade, or number eight, excuse me? Or are they trading back to do that? I would be fine with them doing that at number eight. Wow. If you really like Malik Willis and you're saying, hey, look, this is the best scenario for you that you can sit behind Matt Ryan, who's at this point in his career and never really was a crazy improviser with an amazing arm, but you need to learn from him how to read coverages, understand where the blitz comes from, uh, changing your protections last minute, knowing where to throw the football when the coverage changes post-snap, Learning all those mental 
side of the game, I think that could be huge for someone like Malik Willis. And I'm a big believer. And again, there is a little bias here because of the Josh Allen uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. development in Buffalo. I think if you're going to draft a quarterback, you're going to roll the dice. I'd rather pick someone that has that MVP caliber uh, potential. That if you're hoping for a middle of the road to maybe top 15 quarterback, uh, and that's your goal, I, I, I would just lean in the other direction. That's not to say Kenny Pickett has no upside. Matt Corral has no upside. I just think Malik Willis has more of it than any other quarterback in this class. I hope he goes to an offensive line. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I think it was 50-some sacks last year, right? I mean, this kid yep. is getting yep. pounded early in his career. So hopefully that works out better in the NFL for him. All right, last question. I'm going to throw you a curveball here because it's fascinating okay. to me. Evan McPherson. Cincinnati Bengals draft him, I think, the fifth round. We've seen this now quite a bit over the past couple of years. By the way, both special teamers in Cincinnati were drafted in the fifth round, Kevin Huber as well. well Is, are we going to see this? Are we going to see more and more of this in the, in the mid to later rounds now that teams kind of value special teams as much as they should? Um, I think we could. Cameron Dicker from Texas is probably the top kicker. He'll probably go somewhere on the third day, but not exactly a kicker, a punter. Matt Ariza from San Diego State. Remember that name because we are going to hear a lot about him during this pre-draft process and that he was like setting records, kicking 70, 80-yard punts on a consistent basis. Because of that almost unprecedentedly strong leg, there's some thought that he could just become a kicker too because he's so talented. Um, yes, I, I think with him – we could be talking about third or fourth round potentially because like you're mentioning, when you have a Justin Tucker, when you have an Evan McPherson, um, Tyler Bass, that has a huge leg and you get across the 50 and you are feeling decently good about getting three points out of that drive. There really is value to doing that. I, I'm typically not the biggest fan of drafting special uh, specialists that early, but if that's the way the league is going to trend, and the, the top leg uh, prospects are going fifth or sixth round, then you ultimately need to pick them there. Chris, tell us about your scouting grade book, please. Uh, okay, scouting grade book is the grading system that I've created over the past four years to grade prospects for CBS Sports. The first year I was there, I was kind of doing my big board based on feel. I watched film, but wasn't really almost not sure how to compile a big board that made sense in my brain. So I created uh, a, a huge Google sheet that is available for purchase now. It's $40. I run some promos every couple of weeks, probably during the combine. I did it during the senior bowl. Uh, it's just a way to organize the entire scouting process. You can uh, scout all 300 players. It comes preloaded with over 300 players that are draft eligible this year. The top guys uh, roughly there is a self-building big board. So as you grade and uh, fill out the skill and talent categories at every position with whatever grading scale you want, the big board tab builds itself. So then you can look at that and say, all right, I have this quarterback ahead of this wide receiver and this guard right behind them based on the numbers. Everything's customizable. You can change the labels if you don't feel similarly to me as to how to grade a quarterback or a tight end or a safety. Um, it's just, if you're not even doing all 300 prospects, even if you just want to watch the top five players consensus 
at each position. It's a really good way to organize and kind of streamline what is really a, a chaotic and almost overwhelming pre-draft process. I love the nerdiness of that, Chris. That's good stuff. It's very nerdy. It is <laughs> definitely it. nerdy. It's super nerdy, but it has helped me a lot being able to watch film, plug in some numbers based on my observations, and then get a number. Have it spit me out a number and tell me where that guy ranks without having to try to sit there and, and scratch my head over where does this guy go to have just numbers. And I know you're big with numbers too. Yeah. It's very, very helpful. Yeah, man. You're talking to the right audience here. Chris, thanks so much for your time. <laughs> thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right. My thanks to Chris Tapasso. Please follow him on Twitter. Please follow him at CBS Sports. Obviously, he's got plenty of information and plenty more to come with the combine and free agency in the draft all ahead of us still this off season. Visit theathletic.com slash spot track. Get yourself 40% off that first year subscription. And we will be back in a couple of days with another edition of the Spot Track Podcast. We'll be right back.